every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. Uh, my name's Paul, I'm your host, and I am typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Uh, this week we have made it to um, one of my most hotly anticipated episodes. Uh, we'll, obviously we'll get into why when we start discussing the episode, but I've been looking forward to Afterlife since I started this whole podcast project. But um, yeah, tonight we're talking about um, uh, 603 Afterlife and 604 Flooded. Uh, and talking with me tonight, first time guest, although she, she and I actually had a very uh, formative conversation about this podcast before it actually started. She helped me kind of shape it in my mind. Uh, Faith Current. Former Hollywood script doctor, I'm so sorry, uh, strategic messaging consultant for political candidates, cause groups, and uh, corporations, Buffy scholar, and student of mythology and archetypes for over 20 years. So, Faith, welcome to the graveyard. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you, Paul. I'm glad to be here. It took us a while, but we got you here. That's fine. <laughs> Season six is a great place to be. So. <laughs> okay. So, at, since this is your first time on the podcast, I, I always ask first-time guests sort of what their history with Buffy is like how how were you introduced to the show have you been a fan from the beginning what are your feelings on Buffy and we have to address the season six in the room so let's start with what's your sort of history with Buffy right um I actually discovered Buffy late it was I think fifth season fourth season that I started watching I was a huge X-Files fan and everybody that I knew who watched the X-Files kept telling me to watch Buffy but I confess that I made the same mistake that so many people make of judging it based on the movie and the title and thinking that it was ridiculous. And it didn't take more than an episode or two for me to see that it was far from. And um, being a lifelong student of, of mythology and archetype and symbolism and metaphor, um, and particularly those things in contemporary work, Buffy to me is the definitive classic of our, of, I was going to say of our generation, but I think it goes past that. I think Buffy is a masterpiece of literature and our contemporary literature largely these days lives in cinematic story rather than in the novel. Um, I would put Buffy up against Shakespeare. I would put Buffy up against Chaucer and Hemingway and all of those for its commentary on the human condition. And how could anybody not want to study that? I love that. And welcome to the podcast. This is why... This is why this podcast exists. Um, I love conversations like this uh, with people like you that feel so strongly about the subject. Speaking of feeling strongly about a subject. <laughs> so um, you, you told me before we started recording that you have not listened to any previous episodes of this podcast. 
And I don't remember uh, how clear I was with you when you and I were talking before I did the first episode, but um, famously for, for regular listeners, uh, I am well known as someone who on my first watch of Buffy, this is the first time in years that I've watched it all the way through from the beginning. I've done partial rewatches throughout the years. I've seen every episode multiple times, but uh, this is the first time since its original airing that I've watched it back to back all the way through. Wow. Okay. And on that original viewing, uh, for reasons, I was one of the people who was not a fan of season six. Uh, my reasons were not the those typically cited by people that uh, season six is too dark and I didn't like how the characters were unhappy all the time. I love dark stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the darkness did not turn me off. What what gradually turned me off of season six was uh, a combination of some of the behind the scenes sort of antics of the writers. Some of the some of the some of the off the record conversations that the writers had about certain character arcs. Um, but mostly it was my interaction with other fans. Um, there, mm-hmm. there, there were, there were fan wars brewing at the time and I got wrapped up in a lot of them and it sort of soured my experience of season six. I'm so sorry. So I, I have famously been saying I, I did not used to be a fan of season six, but hopefully on this rewatch being 20 years older than I was the last yes. time and, yes. and uh, hopefully wiser, um, I will have a different experience with it. And there are already many things over the course of the five seasons we've discussed that um, I feel differently about than I remembered. So fingers crossed. Oh yeah. Well, well, you know, I will say that um, during the time season six was on and during the time that I was first watching Buffy, I was a working Hollywood screenwriter and I had no time to, to know about fandom. So Uh I have no fandom experience like at all. In fact, because like, I think of myself as an X-Files fan, P-H-I-L-E, and I did engage in online fan stuff with the X-Files, and I don't consider myself like an X-Files scholar. So the way I engage with X-Files is very much as a fan, but I don't think I could engage with fans of Buffy because it's too trivial. It's too superficial. I, my pleasure comes from engaging with people who talk about it the way you and I have talked about it, which is as a literary work. And so the behind the scenes stuff and all that kind of thing is like, I know nothing and I want to know nothing. So, okay. Well, uh, I'll, I'll try to constructionist. I feel like the work stands on its own. It doesn't require the backstory to, you know, to make sense. Right. Right. Well, uh, bless your your innocence of the behind the scenes <laughs> stuff. So I'll, we'll try to avoid discussing that if we can. But well, no, we, we can if it's relevant. I'm just saying I am a, a fandom virgin as much as I possibly can be because the few times I've dipped into it, I'm like, oh, we're not going there. That's, no, that's scarier than the show. Yeah. So. Have you been involved? Uh, I know you're a Buffy scholar. Have you been involved with uh, the Slayage conferences in any way? No, I, you know, every year I bookmark it and every year I think, you know what, I should take the 560 something pages of notes I have for a book and actually do something with it. And then I don't because other things interfere. And, um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, every year I'm tempted. Maybe someday I will. Maybe after this I will. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I've been to several of them and I love, I I think the Slayage conferences are a, a beautiful mix of, 
fandom and scholar. I mean, it's all it's all scholarly stuff. But when you, when you get all those scholars in one place, there's an awful lot of you know just fun geeking out <laughs> that goes that goes on. So that's the sort of fan community that I tend to interact with now are those super smart people, way smarter than me. I, I'm I've been blessed that they have allowed me to uh, just hang out in their shadows <laughs> for as many years as they have. But Anyways, I recommend it. Uh, the next one, I believe, is going to be in Montreal. So I think you're much closer to it. Oh, now uh, I'm closer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. so. So in terms of season six, I will tell you that those few times um, where, and I think we've all had the experience of trying to get somebody to watch Buffy who has never watched Buffy before and understand it. Yeah. And for me, the challenge has always been that if you start with the first season, you're going to lose people. Because the first season is nothing compared to what comes, you know, and um, and it's it's wonderful and rich and um, foreshadowing for people who've seen the whole show and appreciate the richness of it. But the first season and even the second season, to me at least, is not a good intro to the richness of Buffy. So I actually tell people to start with the first episode of season six when they're watching Buffy. Oh, my goodness. Because I'm like, watch that. And then once you watch season six. And even season seven, if you like, but certainly season six, then go back and watch the rest because now you have context for where it's going. Wow. That is bold. (laughs) Well, the other way doesn't work. You know, I mean, I just, I have people say, oh God, it's just a show about high school students and whatever, whatever. And I'm like, no, it's so not. And so (laughs) if they start with season six, I feel like they get, they get the full, the full Buffy as it were like right up front. My goodness. Okay. That's, uh, so that's intense. That is intense. (laughs) All right. Um, well, let me, um, this will be fun. This will be an interesting conversation. So let me drop a spoiler warning here for anybody who, uh, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, for some reason, you're starting with season six. Hey, just like Faith said. Exactly. There you Um, go. So, yeah, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. Uh, What I mean is we're going to be talking about the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. Uh, That means spoilers and a lot of them. So I recommend uh, if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, press pause, go do whatever you need to do, uh, get your life right, (laughs) come back to the podcast, (laughs) we'll be here. And now with that out of the way, Faith, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's go to work. Let's do this. All right. So we're going to start with uh, the third episode of season six. Uh, If I'd known how strongly you felt about season six, if I'd known that little detail of you always tell people to start with the first episode of season six, I would have had you on last week to talk about bargaining part one and two. But that's all right. I can can still slide things in. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Technically, we're going to start with Afterlife, and I'll ask your opinions on Afterlife, but if you want to preface it with uh, your feelings on Bargaining 1 and 2, because Afterlife picks up right where Bargaining Part 2 left off. It really does. They're all pretty much one, you know. Um, But I want to hear, before I do that, I want to hear why you have been waiting for this episode. (laughs) So... Again, something like that and then not explain it. So. Uh, again, a thing that um, having not listened to the podcast, you're probably not aware of. I am a I am an unapologetic stan, if you know what that term means. I am an I am an uber fan of Spike. I am mm-hmm. a I'm a major, major Spike fan and uh, I, so, and yeah. defend him at, at all costs, uh, every measure. And one of 
Um, I feel like this is one of Spike's shining episodes uh, in terms of like the larger plot, um, yes. like the like the sort of monster of the weakness of this episode. It's kind of light. I mean, the the monster that you're introduced to, uh, and yeah. I can't even remember how to pronounce it. The Tama. I can't remember what it's called, but anyways, the spirit that they end up fighting is really right. kind of not even important. What this episode does is it drops that big reveal at the end, uh, right. Buffy telling what actually happened. Um, but right. for my money, what it does is it, uh, reinforces what I had felt all along. And that is that this is spikes. Damn. Show. <laughs> we get, we get, uh, we get a lot of, Beautiful, beautiful, heartfelt moments from Spike, um, including uh, his Every Night I Save You speech, which which was uh, powerful to me and has played a significant role in my life, uh, including being the inscription that I had put on the inside of my wife's wedding ring. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Well, I get chills just now. Even when you said Every Night I Save You, I get chills down my spine because it's just such a beautifully written, beautifully directed, beautifully acted moment. And um, it's perfect you know yeah. um and by the way I, I tend to agree i feel season six and seven are as much spikes show as they are buffy's yes you know they are they are equal co-stars at that point in terms of their their development as as beings and characters and which to clarify was probably the biggest source of my dis my, my frustration with the larger fandom <laughs> because there was a <laughs> there was a huge segment of the fandom that uh never liked spike and didn't want spike to become the the quote-unquote co-star of the show and uh including yeah. including some of the writers on staff yeah well they need to go get educated and come back as you said <laughs> but no the 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 issue that i've always had I, okay this is a total detour but let's just take two minutes here okay um the issue i always have is with people who are blind to how how completely un um inappropriate a match for Buffy Angel would be compared to Spike. And I mean, we could do a whole episode on that, but I've always found it really interesting that Angel, the instant that he loses his soul, completely stops even trying to be good, right. you know? He only even got his soul through an accident. He never wanted it. Um, he makes no effort at all outside of like this artificial sort of thing that happens to him. Spike worked for it. Spike struggled for it. Spike wanted it. Spike somehow manages to have a conscience and work towards towards morality um, and goodness, even without a soul. So to me, he he is you know a hundred times the man slash vampire slash match for Buffy that Angel could ever be. Trust but, trust me, I, I'm a hundred percent down with that. I, uh, <laughs> I I've had this debate many 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 times over the years, and uh, I I have become a huge fan of Angel the character, uh, primarily because of his arc on his own show. Once he left Buffy, yeah. I, I am confession time. I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm a, I'm actually a bigger fan of Angel this series than I am of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, but in terms of characters, like, you know, Spike's my boy. So Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. And this episode, to talk about Afterlife, to me, does a really good job of dropping some wonderful foreshadows of of Spike's journey and even, and just some really subtle clues about his evolving humanity. You know, the, the most obvious ones being of course that, um, you know, he's really the only one that actually takes the time to understand what Buffy's going through. So, you know, that's the big one. Um, but more than that, you know, there's little moments like Anya saying, um, um, evil things have places to go. Evil things have plans. And then it cuts to Spike. Yeah. 
who has none of those things, right? Who's just sort of completely <laughs> at the loose end, right? So by definition is no longer an evil thing. And, um, and it's, you know, it's a nice cut yeah. in that sense. Um, and by the way, I should add that um, in 20 years of studying Buffy, I have never found anything that was an accident in that show. I've never found anything that was a mistake, even even things that people think are mistakes. I've never found anything that was just a random coincidence. It's like part of the reason I believe that this show sustains so much scholarly interest for so long in so many ways is that there are so many layers to it um, that almost everything you look at has meaning. And, um, and one example of that would be, and it relates directly to Afterlife, is I saw somebody comment one time about the the last scene where Spike is in sort of the half light and Buffy says, why aren't you on fire or whatever? And he's like, the lights, you know, the shade's deep enough here. I can do this. Right. Well, if you think back on prior episodes, when he showed up at Buffy's door with a blanket over him, I mean, she's got a covered porch, so it's not like there's not shade there. But, um, and, and the person that I was talking to said, oh, it's so ridiculously inconsistent how vampires react to the light. And I said, it's not inconsistent. There's nothing inconsistent about it as, as Angel and Spike but particularly Spike, become more human or become more human is dicey because human doesn't always mean good, right? But, you know, discovers more of their humanity. He becomes more and more tolerant to the light. And, um, you know, the, the, the everyday ordinary vampires, they explode at, you know, at the, at, at the slightest brush with any kind of light because they have no soul, they have no morality, they have no humanity in them at all. But you can see just that Spike has evolved to where he can be in the shade outside the magic box is a nice subtle reminder that he is on his journey and um you know and there he is he's becoming more able to stand the light i i really like that i really like that i i happen to be one of those people who uh i have complained is too strong a word but i have nitpicked from time to time uh over the course of this podcast uh in fact about the inconsistencies in sort of the vampire physiology that the show is presented and particularly in the definition of what a soul does you know wh what is a soul what makes mm -hmm. whatever um so i i don't know if i agree with you 100 percent that there are just straight up no mistakes that the show ever makes but i would grant you that the show even the things that the show was a little inconsistent with in the beginning um it runs with and and uh you know it, it makes a silk purse out of a sow's ear kind of over the course of the show and mm -hmm. that stuff is absolutely worth uh scholarly discussion yeah i think my point is if somebody's doing scholarly work on buffy and they run up against something and say oh that was just a glitch that's an opportunity like go check that because every time i've ever thought that was just a glitch if i dig into it i actually find treasure there i find a richness and a layer that i'd an undiscovered a previously undiscovered layer so things that we think are glitches often um point to to just to cool places where no one has written a slayage article yet you know look at <laughs> which, so. which it's so hard to believe that those things exist but they right, exactly slayage is still coming out so yeah, no, I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, but yeah, um, in terms of season six and afterlife and bargaining, you know, my preface for this is that I see the entire um, seven seasons of Buffy as the tracing of the journey of a um, of a modern human being living in 20th slash 20th first century America and their journey towards enlightenment and wholeness. 
And, um, and that's usually, that's generally the way that I do the work with Buffy. That's using a Jungian model, which says that all of the characters in the show are Buffy. And this is a, this is a series about her integrating her various unintegrated parts. Um, and that would include the Scooby gang and the demons and, and all of them. Um, hang on, Scooby gang, demons, all of them was I going to say, oh, we haven't gotten to normal again yet. I, I was just about to ask, how do you so feel about normal again? As a cinematic storyteller, there is no ambiguity in that episode. And, and I've run it by accomplished directors, cinematographers, editors, screenwriters, like multiple people. I have, I have made sit down and watch that episode and said, tell me at the end of this episode, what's real? You know, what's the cinematic language telling you is real? And it is unanimous and unambiguous. Normal again makes it very clear that what's real is Buffy in the institution and that the entire show is happening in her head. There's just, we may not want it to be that way. I don't want it to be that way. I don't like that one even tiny little bit. But the last shot of that episode makes it, there is no other interpretation if you understand and speak cinematic language for that last shot. And so to me that, and I don't believe that's necessary for the interpretation of, of Buffy as a metaphor for human development. Certainly there have been plenty of works of literature written that don't have a normal again, you know, to, to comment on it one way or another. You could totally take that episode out and I don't think it would change it. Um, but so to me, season six and afterlife in particular is a crucial step on the direction or in the direction on the path that Buffy is in to have a normal life, which is the thing that she has always said since season one that she wanted. I want to have a normal life. And yet she's got this thing that keeps her from having it. And all the way at the end in the last episode, when she's standing on the side of the, the pit that used to be Sunnydale and Faith comes up to her and says, yeah, what are you going to do now, Buffy? Now that you have to just live like a normal person. And she smiles. That's her moment of integration. That's her moment of victory. And season six is, in storytelling, we would call it the abyss, but it's also certainly, it's a, it's a major and important step on that way, and especially afterlife. Um, a lot of people interpret the gift as, um, which of course is the last episode of season five, you know, going into this, where she dies, as this heroic, heroic measure. I don't interpret it as a heroic measure. Man, I wish I'd had you on the show. <laughs> I interpret it as, based on what happens now in Bargaining and Afterlife in season six, as the myth of the grand gesture. And we've all had that, or at least I have. I'm, I'm particularly vulnerable to this, and I know a lot of people who are. When we're on our healing path, when we have unintegrated parts of self, when our life is just flat not working, popular culture sells us the myth that all it will take to fix it is a grand gesture. Yeah. You know, right? And, you know, I spent a lot of time in Santa Fe, and Santa Fe is full of people who believed the grand gesture. If I sell all my things and I divorce my husband and I quit my job and I move to Santa Fe and I take some yoga and I go do a spirit quest in the mountains, my life will improve, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it doesn't, of course. You know, what happens is you go to the peaceful place for a while because those things are wonderful, right? Like Buffy's, you know, little heaven experience that she has, which to me sounds a lot like the Buddhist description of the bardo state. Mm -hmm. 
know, and the, the, the place where we go where everything is shapeless and formless and peaceful and there's joy and all of that. But the Bardo state is never meant to be where we live our lives. That's a temporary sort of a refuge. It's a place that we can go. And after we actually die and have done all of our work on Earth, okay, then we can go there. But that Buffy tries to go there sort of prematurely. She, she, you know, she's like, she kind of rushes the process and makes this headlong leap into the abyss. And okay, that's going to solve everything. And she's convinced before she even jumps that it is. And what happens is Buffy learns that you can't stay in the Bardo. You have to come back and actually live in the real life. Um, you have to take the stuff that you learn there, take the wisdom and the gifts that you get, but then you have to come back and you have to still actually be a person physically incarnate. And, and of course, flooded is a lot more about this, which we'll talk about. The world does not always make it easy to do that. Right. You know, so here she has come back and she's like, you know, crap, I was there. And at one point, she even says to me, the telling word is, and I was finished. I was, I, okay. Right? <laughs> I wanted I was, to talk about this. I wanted to yeah. talk about this. Um, the myth that, that we can ever really be done, you know, this idea that we can be, you know, people who say, I went to therapy and now I'm all better, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, you know, I went on this retreat with this guru and I solved all my issues and I, now I'm just done and now I can just live my life. And what Buffy's learning is there's no such thing as finished. Right. You know? So as someone who has uh, struggled with depression his whole life and has been in and out of therapy, unfortunately, I am back in therapy now and uh, I knock on wood, feel like I'm doing much better right now. But um, I, I have my own personal response to that speech that she gives at the end, particularly the line, and I was finished complete. <laughs> uh, and my wife, my wife, likewise, she walked into the room when I was rewatching this episode uh, yesterday. She walked in and she was like, oh, my God, I... How weird that I would walk into the room at the at my favorite moment in the entire series, <laughs> which is that speech and yeah. particularly that line. My wife has the same sort of thing where at times yeah. uh, we both have struggled with feeling and, and I know tons of people feel this way. But we, my wife and I have both struggled at times with feeling um, overwhelmed and like uh, and purposeless or whatever. And like there's just no end in sight. And so the the. Uh, comfort that Buffy seems to express at the notion that, and I was finished complete mm -hmm. is very, very uh, tempting. I mean, that's very, you know, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for. Seductive, I guess. Yes. yes. Um, that's right. And uh, also like, I wasn't going at it from quite the same angle uh, that you were just talking about, but at the end of season five, when we, when I was, when we were coming up on the gift and then when, uh, when Michael Holland joined me and we discussed the gift, I kept trying to initiate a conversation about uh, the notion that um, Buffy's suicide was her attempt at a get out of jail free card, basically. That's right. Which That's is a super harsh way of looking at it. And I am not one of those people. I, I have my own, opinions on suicide and those opinions do not include the notion that suicide is just straight up a selfish act. But I, I, I'm just, I've been trying to start a conversation about whether uh, her ending in the gift was less than wholesome and less than uh, selfless or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Which I, I think, think is kind of what you were just saying. Yeah. I mean, I think, 
think it's seductive to because I've certainly, you know, I, we've all had our, our dark times, of course. And um, it's so seductive to think that one grand gesture could solve everything, no matter how frightening it feels in the moment. And that grand gesture doesn't have to be suicide in the um, for, you know, it, taking taking my model of that every, you know, that every everyone in Buffy is part of her internal self, that the whole thing is a metaphor for um, the integration of self. Her grand gesture, her leaping, doesn't even have to be literal suicide. It's, it can be the kind of suicide where it's like kill the ego, kill the shadow. Mm-hmm. You know, people talk about that, right? Kill the false self. And and certainly there's a place for that. But I think the problem was that she then expected that, one, that was going to make everything better. And, two, it was going to make everything better forever. And um, and there there's nothing that makes everything immediately better, and there's nothing that makes everything better forever. And those are two of the hardest, I think, personally, lessons to learn in in personal growth and spiritual development is that there aren't those things, no matter how many how much people promise them. And it's a crash to earth when you discover that. And that's I think what afterlife is is in bargaining too, but bargaining is more that initial. You know, afterlife is where she catches her breath and actually has time to feel the things she's feeling. Um, and I think she's learning that the hard way, that there is no there is no easy answer to to the journey that she's on. Which is, in large measure, what season six is, the entire season. Yes. That's what it is. That's, that's entirely what season six is. And to me, you know, season six is really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to the work that she has to do. And, um, you know, she tried in season five when she said, I want to learn where I came from and I want you to train me. And she stood on her head and, you know, <laughs> went to the desert and, uh, and and all that was fine. It's sort of like, OK, it's fine that you did that, you know, um, but that's sort of the intro stuff. Season six is now taking all of the wisdom that she got in her vision quests and in her little bardo state and actually learning how to apply it in the real world. And. For most people, that's the hardest part. You know, if you want to go be a Buddhist nun or a Buddhist priest or a monk and you want to just go be like, I mean, I'm talking to you right now from a cabin in the woods in Maine, okay, because I am not immune to this this need, right? Okay, but it's pretty easy to be Zen and peaceful and all that stuff when I'm sitting here alone in the forest. It's a lot harder to do when I have to get on the phone and talk to, you know, the customer service person at the, at the internet company. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you can't, if you can't bring the gifts back from where Buffy went um, into the real world, if you can't bring that treasure back both for yourself and for the people around you, then what good is it? Then, then you haven't. Then you, you know, your que- a quest is only, even if you look at like like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, right? Which I would, I don't consider Buffy a model of that. But um, the hero goes off and he defeats the dragon and he gets the treasure, and it isn't. And then he hangs out and he spends money and he lives it up forever. It's he takes the treasure back to his village to make things better for his community. And what Buffy is not yet doing, what she struggles to do all the way through season six and season seven, is to bring that treasure back. And, um, you know, that's that's her struggle. And she, I mean, she's so not there in afterlife, of course. She's all about herself and repression and, and all that sort of thing. But that's that's ultimately what she does all the way at the end of the series when she figures out that she needs to share the power. This is sort of the, the beginning of that road for her. <laughs> so... 
you've just been added to the list of people that I desperately want to discuss the the, the end of the series with. Please do. I have very strong feelings about the end. Of the series. I, so do I, and they might be contrary to yours. That'd they probably they probably <laughs> are contrary to yours. Um, that whole sharing thing is something that I I have a different opinion on, but. Um, but that's fascinating. I desperately need to figure out how to have multiple guests. Whenever I try to add like more than two or three guests at a time, Skype, Skype craps the bed and I can't do it. So I need to figure out because I feel like the end of this series is going to require a round table of guests. So oh, it might require a special extended episode. Or yeah, something. yeah. Yeah. But for sure. Anyways. Um, also grave grave is grave is the one that I don't know. Grave is a thing, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Grave is the episode I wait for. That's the one I watch over and over again. Oh, yeah? Um, let's see. I'm looking. I have, well, I have so many notes on Afterlife, and I don't know which. I'm trying to kind of look through them and see which ones are apropos to our conversation. Um, well, one of them would be, you know, one of the ways that you can tell that Buffy's not that she has not yet integrated whatever she has learned is that when she comes back, the the cinematic language of it is still very much signaling that she's still a child, right? Uh -huh. it's like she doesn't move into Joyce's room. Tara and Willow are currently um, are currently occupying the parental roles in in the psyche, right? Or the Scooby Gang, which I would call her psyche. She's still in her little her kid's room. In fact. Willow even makes a point of telling her, I, I think it's either Willow or Dawn, who says, we didn't touch it. It's just the way you left it. Mm -hmm. Your childhood is intact, right? right. You're, still, you're still a little girl. There's the, scene, there's the scene with Dawn cleaning her up in the bathroom and helping her dress right. herself. Exactly. And that, by the way, would be Dawn, who in the psyche is the obvious metaphor for the inner child, um, inappropriately assuming a parental role because Buffy's not available to do it, you know, for obvious reasons, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing is about, you know, Buffy wanting to slip very much just simply to slip back into her dependent child place. And of course, even more so with Flooded, you know, when we get there and Giles shows up and, and you know, she she wants him to solve her problems for her. But, you know, that again is a signal that she's not integrated. She's not wise. She has not, whatever happened to her in her little bardo heaven experience has not yet translated into any kind of wisdom. Um, Willow, who would represent the female power slash female wisdom, wise woman in the psyche, is obviously, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> knowing what's to come in season six, right, is obviously in no position to provide any kind of leadership. Yeah. Point, yeah. Right? I mean, she's got her own stuff to sort through in terms of her own power. Um, and so Buffy is largely um, is largely adrift. And. Um, yeah, there's a couple of there's a couple of moments that kind of go to it. Um, one of them is um, here's here's just a few odds and ends that I noticed. Um, Willow's nightshirt um, that has tropical on it with the palm trees. Yeah. And um, tropical islands being the peaceful version of hell, right? <laughs> that's that's like, interesting. Okay. Right? Like a tropical island would be. If, if you think of hot places and you think of the worst, most archetypally negative hot place, it would be hell. Right. right. Yeah. 
you think of archetypally the most peaceful, if you say close your eyes and picture the most peaceful, hot place you can find, most people will say a tropical island, laying on the beach in the sun in a tropical island. Yeah. So Willow's shirt that says tropical sort of, that's before the reveal, mind you. That's before Buffy says where she's really been, foreshadows that reveal. It signals that, oh, you know, Willow, Willow's wearing this shirt and she's like, I don't understand. We pulled Buffy out of hell and why isn't she grateful? And she's wearing the answer to her own question, which is Buffy was on a tropical island. She's not interested in being grateful to you for pulling her out of it. Um, and that's what I mean by like, there's those little clues. Well, well, let me, let me ask you this then. This is, this is going to be semi joking, but, but this is a real hangup I've had with this episode since it first aired. Sure. Uh, let me ask you. So at the moment of the reveal, uh, even though Willow's not part of the reveal, it, it happens at the end of the episode when, when, uh, Buffy is making the big reveal. <laughs> Let's talk about what Willow's wearing at that point. <laughs> Because I know, right? I, I know. have, I have always, I, I've yeah. always described that as an Elmo skin shirt that she's wearing. She looks like she murdered a Muppet and turned it uh, into. I have a note about that scene at the end, Willow in the red fur, which to me telegraphs the price that she paid, right? It's bloody fur yeah. is what she, because she killed the deer. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of little stuff like that. There's Tara throwing, or, um, there's Buffy's, well, this is back up because you were saying monster of the week is kind of irrelevant, but not real. I would argue not really, you know, this, this spinoff of, of basically all of the repressed emotions and fears and secrets of the Scoobies, primarily Buffy, but not just Buffy, um, into this shadow figure, right. Is very Jungian. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly the kind of thing that happens when say, like I said, I spent time in Santa Fe, right? And Santa Fe is full of a lot of very nice, mostly women who have issues and their lives aren't working. And so they throw it all over and they come to Santa Fe and they open a yoga studio or whatever like that. And they take some classes and they put a practice random acts of kindness bumper sticker on their, <laughs> on their SUV. And then they're the, and then, but, and, and then, and they call themselves healed, but they're, they've got this simmering displaced rage because it's never really been dealt with. It's the grand gesture, right? Mm -hmm. And it spins off into cutting people off in traffic and yelling at them at the grocery store. I mean, I have never met more seething anger than in Santa Fe, right? Because nobody wants to admit they're angry. They're all in like the peaceful place. So that Buffy has done this grand gesture that she's repressing all of her feelings that this, nobody's talking about anything. Xander and Anya are, are simmering with their thing. And Dawn is sim. Everybody's got their simmering repressed stuff that doesn't come out till once more of the feeling. Right. Right. So here it is all spun off into this, this shadow, this, this fetch would be another word for it. Right. In the mystical worlds. Yeah. You know, and here it is. And that's not insignificant. That's the collateral damage that happens when we think the grand gesture solved things and it didn't. And now we're forced to live in the world where we now pretend that the grand gesture worked, but it didn't. And we wind up hurting everyone around us with our collateral anger that we're not willing to own. And that's why they were saying you can't get rid of it unless you get rid of Buffy. It's actually a wonderful psychological metaphor for no, you can't just go kill off your shadow. It's a part of who you are. You have to integrate it or it doesn't quite work, right? Um, and so, you know, it is fairly telling psychologically. Um, 
It's also, by the way, kind of fun. There's a little moment where the Buffy shadow fetch thing throws the crystal ball and shatters it. Right. And, you know, what's a crystal ball in our culture but a metaphor for seeing and knowing the future, right? Right. And it's like, you know, Buffy shatters her own future. She doesn't know what's going to happen. And then, you know, Tara, like, reaches down in, quote-unquote, reality and kind of strokes it to make sure that it's still intact, you know. But who are we kidding? It's not. You know, all bets are off going forward with that shattered crystal ball. So then it's significant that uh, the the episode, the, the monster of the week is defeated by uh, Buffy beheading it. Yeah, but of course only temporarily because I would argue it comes back as the first. Right. Oh man, right? the first, there's a thing. I mean, how can it not come back as the first, right? Because yeah. fundamentally in the end, the only enemy that Buffy has ever only had, ever had to defeat was herself. You know, that's that's one of the brilliant, amazing, profound things that makes Buffy such a classic of literature is that in the end, in that, you know, and we're not, you know, we're 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 two seasons away from that. But in the end, you know, who is her enemy herself? Yeah. And so, yeah, does she temporarily defeat her little repressed feelings? Well, only till the next episode when they, you know, come flooding back, as it were. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Man, you're so I'm looking I'm scanning through my notes and I, I my stuff feels so lightweight in light of this conversation that we are having. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm, I, mean I, I, go for it. I have a few, a few other interesting things about this episode, but you know, I'm sure you have some, some things that you want to discuss. Oh, I mean, really all I ever want to talk about is spike, but uh, since, <laughs> okay. So in bite me, the unofficial companion to Buffy, the vampire slayer, uh, uh-huh frequent guest and friend of the show, Nikki Stafford, uh, uh-huh. she talking about this episode, she addresses the sort of the Wiccan concept of the threefold law. And she also ties it into just notions of karma and the Judeo Christian, you reap what you sow kind of stuff. Sure. Um, she points to the, to those ideas as sort of a, a signpost for the entire season as a whole. Her, her point is that this season Basically, nothing but terrible stuff happens to our heroes <laughs> pretty much the entire from the beginning of the season, literally all the way to the end. Uh, mm-hmm. And that her her uh, her point here is that this season is the price that everyone is paying for Willow's hubris, yes. for her yes. her abuse of the magic at the beginning by bringing Buffy back. Yes. Yes, I think that's a legitimate read. And, and um, in fact, we could, looking ahead to Flooded, the introduction of the trio, the, the nerd trio, we could say there's a literal, if slightly goofy, and you know, manifestation of the threefold law. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a, it's an absolutely legitimate way of looking at it. Um, another related way of looking at it for me is, and, and this would take us off into a whole other direction that we probably shouldn't do right now, but um, a lot of the work I do, um, my working theory, in addition to that, um, that the entire show is, is, is the entire seven seasons are the integration of the self, you know, from various parts into a whole, is also that Buffy is a contemporary retelling of the ancient Sumerian legend of Inanna. And, um, wow. Season six would be would fit into that really well, which is like the, you know, the very short version is there's a part in the legend where Inanna loses everything and she's strung up on a hook in the underworld until she becomes nothing but bones. 
And it's required in order for her transformation, for her to go through that, you know, that essentially losing everything. And that's not just her. Remember that in my model, the whole Scooby gang is the Buffy self. So Xander has to lose everything. Anya has to lose everything. You know, Willow has to lose everything. Tara has to lose everything. Spike has to lose everything yeah. um, in order for them to then reconstitute as a healthier whole. So the season six part is necessary if you take all of the seven seasons as one story, you have to have the abyss moment. You have to have the the care all is lost, you know, quote unquote moment. And in a hundred and something episodes, that moment is going to take at least 22 episodes. You know? <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's just how long it's proportionately has to be. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a couple of other moments that really kind of support all of, let me, let me just look at this real quick. Um, Buffy, um, seeing Dawn off to school uh-huh. lunch and saying, you know what they say, those of us who failed history are condemned to repeat it in summer school. And that's playful and it's fun. Right. Um, it's a, it's a Buffy-esque moment, but we all know that that, what that quote, that, that moment only works because we all know what the original quote was, was, which is those who fail to remember history are condemned to repeat it, which is just another example of how Buffy has to learn things before she can continue to to grow. She has to remember where she came from. She has to integrate her experience. Those who fail to remember history. She needs to remember what she went through. She needs to remember the lessons. She needs to bring whatever wisdom she gathered in her little enlightenment state into the real world or the same sorts of things that have always happened to her are going to keep happening to her. Right. One one of my uh, sort of petty little complaints uh, in the early seasons uh, had always been, uh, and I talked about it on the podcast, has always been that, uh, especially in like the first three seasons, it occasionally, it, it often felt like an episode would end with with Buffy or one of the Scoobies, but like usually Buffy, uh, having some grand epiphany, like learning a valuable lesson, the the, the moral of the week or whatever, uh, yeah. w- was taken in and uh, it, it ends on a happy note and everyone's like, uh, yay, we've learned something valuable. And then like literally the next episode, that valuable lesson is completely forgotten. And maybe at some point further in the season, they have to learn the same lesson over again or whatever. Um, one of the reasons that always frustrated me uh, is that I was looking at the series as a whole and, and uh, knowing sure who the characters eventually become and like who i want the characters to be. i don't know it's it's the early seasons hadn't quite embraced the the hadn't fully embraced the ongoing narrative as much as the show does from like season four onward right so right. it was a lot more of a of a like syndicated week to week show right um but it i i was often frustrated with that where a character was was doing something dumb in an episode and then they learn a valuable lesson to not do that dumb thing and then like again that yeah. lesson is completely forgotten next week well i think of that i mean yes certainly the the show grew, grew and matured um and in part that's why i start people at season six when they're over all of that right but um, man but that's also- still that's still harsh but I, i'm i'm following you i got you <laughs> but also um um isn't that kind of how life works, though? You uh, know? Yes, I, yeah. I can't even tell you how many times I series matured, you know, as as it went, and they and they started to really understand what they had, which is why 
you know, again, I start people in season six. But some of it is also that, yeah, that's pretty much how life works, is you have to learn the same lesson over and over again, ideally on the spiral to, rec- to re- you know, reference another um, episode title, right? Yeah. Um, hopefully you're learning it at a higher level and in a deeper way. But, um, but yeah, we, we do tend to, I mean, Buffy, one could argue that her whole, one of the lessons that she has to learn over and over again until that last episode is you can't do it all on your own. Right. Right. How often does she have to learn that lesson before it finally sticks? Well, seven years worth. (laughs) (laughs) Seven years worth before she finally gets it. And even though along the way, she has certainly had ample opportunities to learn. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, now I've, now I feel weird wanting to talk about Spike because you're really like, you're really honing in on this whole, it's all about Buffy thing. Which, well, which I'm sure frequent listeners of this podcast are just giggling over the fact that I am having to struggle with uh, it's all about Buffy notion. <laughs> well, no, I mean, certainly as the season and, and, and the last two seasons go on, it becomes increasingly about Spike. Yeah. And, and I do have some notes about, you know, Spike and the appearance of the masculine in, in this episode in terms of, you know, part of what we have to integrate when we integrate ourselves is the divine masculine, the divine feminine, the young, you know, all of the the elements that all human beings, male or female, have within them. And you probably know that, you know, Jung's, to, to oversimplify Jung, his idea was that the masculine or the animal was sort of the, the agency, the element of action and strength and all of those stereotypical qualities that our culture thinks of as masculine but could just as easily be called the yang or the yang. I get confused as to which is which, apologies. The yeah. masculine... The, version of that right yeah, yeah. Um, and so in that sense yeah I mean that stuff is all over this episode you know all the way from you know I mean part of the reason Buff- why Buffy struggles is when she comes back she has no strong masculine component in the self and again by masculine I don't mean the stereotypical cliche thing I mean that we all have masculine and feminine parts within us and we need both of them in each human being in order to be integrated men need a feminine and women need a masculine yeah um right i mean it that way before you get angry hate mail about my gender (laughs) stereotype no 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 no. but you know i mean spike is the closest thing with his own stuff you know and the scoobies won't let him close Right. Um, which, of course, is going to be a, a repeating battle. You know, ultimately, Spike is going to become her divine masculine. I mean, he literally turns into the freaking sun in the last episode, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. how much more of a, of a symbolism do you really need for that, right? You've got Xander, who starts the episode by by putting on a good show of being a masculine, walking through the alley saying, my finely honed senses will pick up on any dangers and then, ah, you know, and he freaks out. Right. Yeah. So clearly like Xander has some, some, some work to do before he could be the strong masculine. Um, and in fact, when they show him and Anya in bed, you've got toy cars on his headboard. Mm-hmm. Cars in Jungian psychology are often seen as agency or independence or, you know, um, self-motivation, Inter- all that kind of stuff. Interesting, because isn't this the episode <laughs> when we, you know, <laughs> this is the episode when when we first see that uh, Xander has a car. This is the this but, is the first time we see him drive. Right, he's like, I, I'm going as fast as I can. Right, and, and who is it that says something like, I could drive faster and Dawn. A dead- Right. Don, I can drive faster and I can't even drive. Right. So, yeah, he has toy cars on his headboard because he's sort of fake pretending to be a man, but he's not there yet. Right. With his fake marriage 
proposal and is Anya calling him on the, do you really want to do this or not? Then he's got a car that can't actually go fast enough to do anything, right? So you have all of these um, signals of weak masculine, like good weak masculine, you know, in progress. Uh Uh-huh with as much work to do as Willow has to do on her divine feminine. <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody is, everybody's got a long way to go still. It's yeah. kind of the point, you know? Well, um, I, I never shy from my, um, I want to be careful how I phrase this, my stereotypical feminine side, I guess, my <laughs> uh, my either weak masculine or strong feminine side. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm in touch with my feminine side. I cry at stuff all the time. I am very emotionally open. And the stuff in this episode, which um, I had someone the other day ask me, I, I made reference to this episode as being uh, one of my favorites and the one I'm looking forward to. And they were like, why? There's nothing to that. And literally, it really is. On rewatch, there's a lot of great stuff. And you've opened my eyes to a lot of great stuff. But literally, it's just for the emotional spike moments. Um, like... Yeah. Like the shot, the shot of him first seeing her come down the stairs. This is the thing that I always point to someone when they asked me, what is it about this episode? I was like, when Buffy walks down the stairs and Spike first realizes that it's really her, that extended moment, the looks that they exchange, the acting that both of them, that Sarah Michelle Gellar and James Marsters do in that moment, that is the damn show for me. That is, that is why I watched this show. I'm with you. I'm with you. And the moment where he says, had to do it myself once. Yeah. He notices the injuries on her hands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And then, and then Spike crying like openly when, when uh, Xander finds Mm -hmm. him outside and he's wiping away tears and uh, his emotional vulnerability right there. Um, also, I love the fact that in that scene, Spike is once again uh, the one that notices truth that the others either don't or won't acknowledge because he recognizes that Willow, like Xander's like, Willow wouldn't do that. And Spike's like, oh, oh, yeah. Right. Like he is always the one that picks up on these things, particularly with Willow. This is like the third or fourth time he's noticed stuff about Willow that nobody else wants to acknowledge. Right. Right. Well, and he's always been the truth teller. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, if, if he, him and Anya, um, mm-hmm the truth teller sort of taking over from Cordelia, you know, right. when she left is, 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 um, my, my understanding. And, and that makes sense, you know, and it's also worth noting and it's, it's particularly true in Buffy. And I think you might remember what episode this is in. There's some episode in which someone, Anya, I think says evil things tend to tell the truth. And, um, mm. Oh, I don't remember where it was. It was, it, it, I think it's in the seventh season where it's something like, somebody says something about, well, is the stuff that the first said true? Is something like, oh yeah, evil things tend to tell the truth. You know, that's why they're so dangerous kind of a thing. Yeah, that might be coming up in season seven because I'm sure I'm sure I would have commented on that if if it had already happened. And and of course, you know, in this episode we get a clear clear note um, that we already talked about that Spike is no longer an evil thing. Um, But yeah, he's still certainly functioning as the truth teller. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I mean, for me, of course, you know, but also it just, I think it speaks to all of our heartbreak when we think, we think we finally got it, you know, like we've been battling an internal demon or a problem in our life. And then maybe we have some kind of late night epiphany, you know, or we read some book by some guru or, 
or something happens that monument that really does seem like it's going to really shift things and it just feels in that moment or for that night like everything is just going to be different and better now you know and then that feeling of absolute despair and heartache and hopelessness when you realize that things are not as different as you thought they were going to be and um I just, I think it's brilliantly told, the metaphor of this, you know, and I think Buffy and Spike both struggle with it in this, yeah. you know. Um, well, I think the last note that I would feel even remotely comfortable bringing up <laughs> about this episode at this point uh, is that um, I get that it's cheesy. The show has done things like this a few times, and, and I get that it's maybe a little heavy-handed, maybe it's a little bit on the nose, but I don't care. I love it every time that the show does something like this. Um, but the shot of Buffy walking through the cemetery and past the angel statue, statue. and mm -hmm. the camera panning with her so that the wings yeah. stay on her back for an extended period of time. Yeah, yeah. Maybe cheesy, maybe a little heavy handed of the show, but I don't care. I loved it. I loved it too. I don't think it's heavy handed for the show. If you're not a Buffy scholar, I think that's the kind of thing that regular people would, would not even notice. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, when you study a show is as, as closely as you and I and other Buffy scholars do, it's easy to forget how blindly most people watch, you know? Yeah. I mean, stuff feels heavy handed and obvious to us because we're looking for stuff that's so much even more subtle than that, right? But I can almost promise you that if you show just even regular Buffy fans, not even newbies, but people who are like, oh, I love Buffy, it's a great show, but they're not Buffy scholars, and maybe even some Buffy scholars that, the majority of them would not notice that moment. So it's, it's only heavy-handed from our perspective. Um, it's, a quite, it's a quite elegant foreshadowing because, again, that's before the reveal. Right. right, that foreshadows the um, whole heaven thing, yeah. And, and, and there's a thing that happens, to just borrow from my script doctor days, um, there's a, the most masterful form of reveal is not the kind of reveal where you get to the end and you go, oh man, I never saw that coming. That's actually the least artful kind of reveal. The most artful kind of reveal is the one where you go, oh, damn, of course, oh, now I'm remembering this and this and this. You totally gave me a fair shot to figure that out. I didn't figure it out. You got me fair and square. <laughs> That's the most artful, masterful form of reveal. You see it in the sixth sense most, most yeah. famously, yeah. right? Um, and I would say that things like the angel's wings are part of why it shows how masterful the creative team is because they're giving us every chance to figure it out, right? Every chance. And yet, when we get to the end, we go, oh, damn, of course she'd be in heaven. Why would she be in hell, right? Yeah. Um, we just got led down the garden path of, of course, she's going to be in hell, even though there's no reasonable reason to think that she would be, right? Um, and we had more than enough foreshadows to figure it out, but we didn't because they misdirected us. And they were masterful. The creators were masterful at storytelling. And so they got us fair and square. And I think that's why the episode works so well. The uh, Some of my favorite fiction my favorite films or television shows are the things that um that do that where i get to the end and i immediately feel like i need to go back and rewatch it to right. with, with a fresh understanding <laughs> like right. like the sixth right. sense that kind of thing i love those things um, right and then you go back and you see all of the stuff that was there hiding in plain sight for anyone who cared to see it right um 
But it's there. If they had given us no foreshadowing at all that Buffy was really in heaven, that wouldn't have been as masterful because that would have been a, yeah, I don't know. I called it a little bit. You last know, it last was- week, last week when Elizabeth Rambo and I were talking about bargaining, um, I think that, that must be when it was. I think that's when it was. Uh, we were talking about, I, I talked about how um, profound it was for me. This is seems like a silly little moment, but at one point in, in one of those episodes, um, I think Willow is the one that is talking about how they have to get Buffy because she, she could be in a hell dimension. Um, Mm -hmm. And she cites, she finally, after a few minutes, she finally cites, you know, that's what happened to Angel. Remember Angel was killed and he, and for some reason it just struck me like a bolt of lightning. I was like, that is a genius moment Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people already are predisposed in this, in the context of this series to assume, yeah, Buffy's Buffy's been sucked off to a hell dimension. Of course we have to save her, but if they haven't, just in case they haven't remind them, Oh yeah, this happened with angel. Of course, Buffy's in a hell dimension and we have to save her. Right. Yeah. It's the garden path is, is the, the term of art that we always used in script doctoring. It's leading people, you know, down the happy garden path that takes them in totally the wrong direction, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, dropping clues all along the garden path of what's really going on, but we're so entranced with the garden path that we're not really looking at them. Yeah. That's masterful, brilliant storytelling. Okay, man, we've spent a ton of time on Afterlife. Let's uh, let's dive, uh, see what okay. I did there, into Flooded. Um <laughs> I have notes on flooded too, so All right. okay. I I, uh, I just have to say, well, first I'll point out this is a crossover episode. I, I try to remember to always point these out. Um, so this episode crosses over with uh, season season three, episode five of Angel. Uh, the title is Fredless. Oh right, right, right. Yeah. 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 The end of this episode sure. is is yeah. Buffy getting a call and she has to go meet Angel, and the beginning of that episode Another is one just one yeah, Angel thing. coming back from that meeting. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, I love because I love how that, and this is unrelated to anything profound. I just love how that was, I believe, a gift to fanfic writers. You know? <laughs> because it's like they could have showed that, but the idea that, that nobody knows what happened and that that is therefore perfect fodder for what I'm sure, even though I haven't read them, are a million fanfic. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? Uh, it's just a perfect gift. I of, love it. Of course, the reality of it is at this point, they can't show that because this is <laughs> different networks. This yeah. is the new network and they haven't uh, struck a deal yet. So at this moment, um, they're actually forbidden from having right. those right. crossover moments. But but it's also a nice fanfic gift. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because there are certainly ways they could have handled it beyond that. You know? yeah. So this episode features one of my favorite cold opens of the entire series uh, with Buffy <laughs> walking around in the basement and fixing uh-huh. the leaky pipe and then there's just that quiet pause and the whole and then the entire every pipe in there just explodes mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. like there all better i don't know why but th- just the pacing and the humor of that is oh, one of my favorite of the cold opens oh it's vintage buffy it really is um and it's a wonderful carryover from the last line of afterlife which is they can never know right right which is repression and so this is what happens when you repress things. <laughs> they explode. Pipes, right? get, pipes get backed up, yeah. Yeah, it carries the analogy over. She's, her, Buffy's answer to the problem is to tighten the pipe even more and to clamp down on her emotions, to pretend everything is okay, to not deal with it, to keep her secrets, right? And, um, and everybody's keeping secrets, you know? Buffy's keeping them. Willow's keeping them about what she did to make the spell work. Xander and Anya keeping the secret of their engagement, 
Um, you know, I mean, it's just all of it setting up for the reveal in Once More with Feeling, of course. But Tara is the only one not keeping secrets. Tara is the only one not keeping secrets. And in a sense, she's sort of keeping Willow's secret, but not really because she doesn't know it. Right. You know? yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, Flooded to me is all about repression and the con- well, not all about, but it starts off being about the consequences of repression, which is, you know, this is what happened. I, <laughs> so, I like it. Stuff. You know, and the other thing is flooded starts in the basement. And of course, many, many, many scenes and episodes of Buffy take place in basements and in caves and underground. And part of that is, of course, if you're going to have a story about vampires who can't be in the light, they're going to be in dark places. That goes without saying. But it goes deeper than that, which is that given that vampires are already archetypes of our repressed shadow selves, right? that um, Jungian psychology tells us that underground is where both the the things that we reject and deny about ourselves and our psyches live, but it's also where the wisdom is that we have to go find in order to integrate and become whole people. <laughs> so, you know, it's not a surprise to me that, you know, that, that once again, we're in the basement, repressing things, shoving them in the basement at the end when they're when she and spike are fighting the demon and she says spike i want him in the basement yeah 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 of course you do because that's where you stuff everything you don't want to do (laughs) (laughs) further repression buffy nice job (laughs) and again a hilarious line delivered in that moment when spike's like huh did you know this place was flooded flooded (laughs) and you've got the trio in the basement right yeah I mean, you've got all the stuff, all the repressed stuff, all the negative stuff, all the icky stuff, all the stuff that needs dealing with, um, including a healthy um, dose of water, which in archetypal symbolism is wisdom and feminine power, right? Mm. I mean, she's got so much wisdom and feminine power, it's literally flooding her house, but she doesn't know what to do with it yet. <laughs> that's, you know? that's interesting. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, it doesn't help you to just have it. You have to know how to channel it. You have to know how to, how to funnel it and pipe it where it needs to go. You know, Willow's out of control or soon to be, you know, Buffy's repressing. So of course their plumbing is clogged. Of course their, you know, their water is not useful to them in this moment. So, so that water metaphor is not how I read this, but let me, I, I just have to point out the following scene after they get out of the basement is Buffy sort of tuning out and just staring at the water yeah, coming the water. out of the sink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I made a note about that too, of like, okay, if one takes water as the, the, the symbol for for feminine wisdom and intuition, you know, there's a sense I, in that moment I get, and and this, by the way, I should say is this is an idiosyncratic read. You know, I wouldn't stand by this as any sort of definitive read. Okay. But you could read read it as on a gut level, she understands that's what she needs. She just doesn't know how to get it or what to do with it, you know, or how to make it work for her. Uh-huh. But, you know, water. Yeah. Water is is what she needs. But I, I was going to make some lame comment about how the metaphor is. She's just watching it pour down the drain. Well, that too, right? She's that, that. I wouldn't even say that's lame. She's watching her feminine power pour down the drain, wasted and unused. Yeah, you know. So, um, so here's a. This is a thing that has been, I'm sure, debunked hundreds and hundreds of times over the course of uh, Buffy scholarship. But I cannot resist bringing it up. I brought it up uh, in our dis- bargaining discussion. Uh, I think the numbers in bargaining were 
I think Xander was wearing a number 13 shirt. Uh, Willow was wearing a number 11 and Dawn was wearing a number seven. In this episode, Dawn wears not one, but two additional numbered shirts. Mm -hmm. The number Mm -hmm. two and the number 55. So again, this is a thing that I'm pretty sure has been debunked. I think the writers have said, no, it didn't mean, it does not mean anything, but come on. Come what's, on. What's with all the numbered shirts? Well, well, here, here's the thing, and this is this is. We need is a why, numerologist to explain. Yeah, this to well, us. this is the thing I mentioned about you know why there are no accidents because the writers may not have intended anything. The 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 the, the wardrobe people may not have intended anything, but that doesn't mean that there isn't meaning there. Yeah. You know, I can't. I, I if any creative person who has done any kind of meaningful creative work will tell can tell you about situations where they had no idea they were inserting x y or z into their work until mm-hmm. after the fact and they look back and were like whoa where did that come from right by season six this team is so well honed this team is so masterful at attention to detail that i would submit that even when they're not trying they're doing meaningful things because <laughs> that's just the way it unfolds, you know, um, they, they've set up a good story. It's a tale well told by really brilliant people. So, and, and, and not just the writers and directors and actors, but the set dressers and the location people and all those guys too. I would suggest that it's not just what they do consciously. It's what they do subconsciously that, that counts. And yeah, those letters are, those numbers are way too deliberate not to mean something. I don't know yet what they are. Okay. All right. Any, any, any numerologists in the audience, please help us decipher what all these numbers are. I will suggest I call, I call BS that that's meaningless. Okay. I, I believe that they didn't mean quote unquote consciously to do it, but I don't believe that it, that, that it doesn't have a meaning. I just think that's one of the uncracked Buffy mysteries. Okay. Well, that is, that's the, the newly stated purpose of this podcast then is to, to crack the code and by the way i was thinking of that just again this morning i was like wouldn't it be cool if i had an answer for paul i was like i don't have an answer yet (laughs) oh well it's out there it exists if if i did i could be like the keynote speaker at the conference or something yeah absolutely i I don't have it sorry oh well uh we'll find it um so this episode gives us uh, i was commenting last week that uh i'm just like I'm a defender of Spike, I am also a defender of Dawn. Uh, I mean, I don't feel as strongly about Dawn as I do about Spike, but I, I happen to like the character of Dawn. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel like the character is never as well used as she was in season five, which makes total sense because that season was built. She was built for that season. Right. <laughs> um, but in these, in the beginning of season six, I think uh, she's served really well. I've been told, just to, to let you know, my memory is terrible and I don't remember all the details of stuff coming up in the rest of season six. Um, so I don't know if this is true, but I've been told that uh, this is it. Like from this point on, they really start, uh, like Dawn really goes downhill. But in these first few episodes, I like the... Uh, I like the way that Dawn was allowed to be the inappropriate, perhaps, but she was allowed to have sort of the adult moment when uh, her sister came back and she was the one that, you know, got to yell at the other Scoobies to, hey, guys, calm down, back off, leave her alone. You're crowding her or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then but then this episode gives us another example of the what I think of as sort of the ridiculous infantilization of Dawn. Dawn is 15 years old and. 
Um, I suppose in the context of this season, which is all about our characters becoming full-fledged adults and how awkward and painful and, and horrible mm -hmm. that is, mm -hmm. she is literally the only child still left in the cast, but it is still, in the context of all of us fans watching a show for five or six years at this point, mm -hmm. that that dealt with a young teen girl and her young teen friends facing grotesque horrors for years. Right. It just makes it seem plain silly that they are now treating 15 year old Dawn as if she is like a six year old. Right. The you're doing research now. Do you want a pack of cigarettes and a, yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I did notice that. I, I've always felt like, I mean, Dawn to me is one of, and her appearance, just to, to flash back to, to season five for a second, is to me one of the things that first solidified my conviction that the whole show is a metaphor for personal growth. Because what happens, uh, not always, I mean, everyone's personal growth thing is different, right? But what happens if you do enough inner work is that sooner or later, your inner child pops up, fully formed and unannounced, always having been there but never having been able to speak or be known to you because it wasn't safe. And then suddenly, just all of a sudden, there is this little person, little voice inside of you that you never had before, but somehow have always had before. And that's exactly what Dawn was. She appears fully formed in the series as though she had always been there, which of course she had been, um, if you use this metaphor, right. but, but nobody remembered her. Nobody knew what to do with her. Nobody knew any of those things. Just like when our inner child first appears, we don't know what to do with them or how to handle them. We don't want them there. They're a pain in the ass. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden there's this being that we need to take care of when we're already struggling to take care of ourselves. It was a perfect metaphor for how the inner child tends to show up when you do Jungian work or dream work or in, in, integration work on the self. Um, and then what happens in season six is Dawn is forced. She's in that, she's in that weird flux place that an inner child is in when the ego self is not capable of taking care of even itself, much less the inner child. It's trying to parent, um, which she, Dawn isn't capable of doing, mm -hmm. you know, she tries really hard, but she sucks at it. Um, and she's obnoxious when she does it. And, and she's clearly out of her depth as she should be. No one should expect their inner child to be the parent, which we too often do. Um, you know, while at the same time, yeah, she's, she is, you know, she is still a child. And that's one of those places where it works. If you, if you take the metaphor of Buffy as the self, rather than looking at them as real people, if you look at them as real people, I agree. It's like, wait a minute. Buffy was 15 when the series started and no one told her she couldn't do research, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's an inconsistency. But if you look at it in terms of the metaphor and you go, no, 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 this is all happening in Buffy's head, right? When Buffy was 15, Buffy was 15. That's a whole other deal than when Buffy is now where she is in her journey and her inner child is showing up and she doesn't know what to do with this little person. You, you are, so you are both blowing my mind and breaking my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, no, no. This, this is, this is great. This is the kind of stuff that I kind of, you know, I want this podcast to do is, is to have these conversations that I'm perhaps not prepared to have. But um, yeah, I, I both love the, I love the concept of the entire show is just a metaphor for her inner struggle, but I also still like to think of the characters as real. So of course, of course. And so. when I'm watching it for pleasure, you know, often I do. Yeah. 
you know, but yeah, that we have this person who has sort of this psych, this part of our psyche that has newly popped up. And, you know, sometimes it's one thing and sometimes it's another. And basically we just want it to go away because we're not even capable of parenting ourselves, much less this little inner person. We're all over the map with it. And, um, and so, you know, to me, it makes sense within the context of that metaphor. And that's part of what solidifies my, my conviction that the metaphor is the underlying structure for the show. Because the metaphor irons out the things that would be inconsistent if you take it as a show in which everybody is their own person. Right. Well, let's talk about the metaphor of the trio then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about the trio? Uh, the trio, um, I'll just lay the groundwork so you know where I'm coming from. Uh, I One of my other uh, sort of, char- the, one of the other characters I defend <laughs> against all odds maybe <laughs> against uh, against my better judgment perhaps uh, is Jonathan uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. and uh, that's been a little problematic in the past maybe and now that he's in the nerds of doom that's only going to make it worse in the future but uh, I still persist in kind of sticking up for Jonathan so uh-huh. Uh-huh. what? Uh, how do you feel about the the trio the nerds of doom yeah. Well, you know, in this episode, I feel like they're really they're performing two functions. Their, their larger function, of course, in this all of season six and in the show as a whole is they are once again the unevolved, weak, masculine. And they're an example of what happens when a person and again, I will preface this with this is not about gender roles. This is about we all have an internal masculine and an internal feminine. And we need both to be healthy, regardless of what our gender is, to be a healthy and balanced person. Mm-hmm. And if you have an unstable, weak, insecure, inner masculine, you become a dangerous person because, you know, that's how you get narcissists. That's how you get people who start wars. That's how you get serial killers. That's how you get right. And that isn't to say that only men do those things. That's to say that people who have a weak sense of agency in the world, which is what in Jungian psychology, masculine to to oversimplify often stands for is our agency in the world, our ability to act, um, our ability to put our creative things that say our, our inner feminine incubates into reality in the world. Mm-hmm. And when you do not have a, when you have an impotent inner masculine, you get rage and frustration and really bad things start to happen. And the trio are such a good example of that. You know, Spike is a good example of that too, but he is working on ascending, whereas the trio is not working on that at all. <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> do, to, to look uh, into the future just a little bit, do you... Uh... So obviously we know what, how Warren ends up. Uh, Warren never achieves never achieves any kind of balance or, or redemption or whatever. But uh, how do you feel about Jonathan and uh, Andrew going forward as they carry over into season seven? Like, do you think that those characters ever uh, overcome the <laughs> what they are in season six? Well, Jonathan in season seven, I'm blanking that there's even a Jonathan in season seven other than as a manifestation of the first. Um, doesn't, uh, doesn't Andrew, again, this is a spoiler podcast, people listening. So just a reminder, uh, doesn't Andrew, isn't Andrew forced to actually kill Jonathan at one point? Doesn't yeah, but- Jonathan sacrifice himself in order to... I can't remember if that was real or if that was the first. No, I think that's in season six. That's Jonathan. Andrew kills Jonathan on the seal to open the seal. Or maybe that's in season seven. I think that's season seven. 
Yeah, but either way, Jonathan is certainly not a willing sacrifice. He's he's okay. murdered, you know. Um, I would say that Andrew does become an integrated part of the whole Buffy self, using my metaphor, in the last episode when he sacrifices, when he, um, when he, well, it's the moment where they get off the bus all the way at the end, and Xander asks about Anya, and Andrew starts to do his wussy. Well, there's this, and then there's there's one episode before that. He does his wussy, I don't know, I didn't see. And then you can see him take a breath and literally sort of man up, to use that word. I mean, that's uh-huh. not that I've ever seen a more literal um, acting out of that phrase. Then <laughs> <laughs> as Andrew literally gets tall and squares his shoulders and takes a breath and says, she was amazing, you know, and tells Xander the hard news. She died saving my life, you know. Um, and, 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 and in that moment, I think he becomes a fully redeemed, integrated part of the Buffy self. Um, but I don't think it happens till then, you know, it happens a little bit in Storyteller when, when with the tear, you know, that's sort of the beginning of it. Um, Warren, no, you know, no, no Warren. (laughs) There's no redemption for Warren, but you know, for me, flooded, the larger theme of flooded is, you know, we talked about an afterlife, how there's that thing where, you know, you do the grand gesture and you for a minute you think everything's going to be better and then the heartbreak of realizing it's not. And to me, Flooded deals with a similar heartbreak, which is that the world, the system is not interested in our personal growth. Mm-hmm. It's not interested in in mentally healthy beings. It's not interested in making an accommodation for someone who is fighting their internal demons. And. And throughout the whole episode, Buffy starts where many of us start, right? Like if you're in crisis and not, not maybe you and, and, and maybe not maybe me, but a generic person in our culture who is in some sort of emotional or psychological crisis, the first instinct is going to be to turn to the system to help. And, you know, okay, let's see what sort of help is available to me through the system. And flooded to me is one instance after another of Buffy seeking help from the system and discovering there is no help to be had, starting with the plumber. Yeah. You have problems with your pipes. What do you do? In our culture, in the system, you call the plumber, the man with the uniform that says plumber on it, who will give you the official estimate and the official expert guy. And he's going to tell you that it's going to cost this much to fix your pipes. To me, that's a metaphor for like a therapist, not a particularly good therapist, probably, <laughs> right? As you want your repressive emotional issues fixed, here's how much, you know, psychotherapy is going to cost you, right. right? I will come and I will unclog your repressed psychic pipes. Or as Don says, that's a weird phone number. Right, exactly. And it's like, okay, well, that's not going to happen, right? So, you know, okay, that didn't work. So then, okay, she's going to go to the bank. You know, what better a, a metaphor is there for our system than a bank with a with a spectacled, cheaply suited white guy behind a desk and a large portrait of an imposing, very wealthy white guy on the wall behind her, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, that, and then of course, you know, the system isn't going to help her there either. And when the demons show up in the middle of her trying to, to do the the thing that our culture says is a thing to do, then there's the security guard with the gun, two more symbols of the way the system tries to solve the problems. And of course, Buffy says these things never helpful. You know, the security guard is not helpful. The gun's not helpful. The banker's not helpful. The plumber's not helpful. 
Um, you know, and it goes on. And I think, am I right that the next episode is the one where she goes looking for work? Um, the theme is sort of continued in that next episode where, you know, she, she keeps trying to, to solve her problems by going through the motions of a normal, regular life before she's ready. And she has no shot at it because when you're that much in psychological crisis as Buffy is, you can't maintain a normal life. And the system is completely unsympathetic and unsupportive of anybody who's trying to heal. Um, so to me, it's a it's a really good commentary on how we live in a culture that is not life affirming, that is not supportive of genuine psychological health or growth. Um, you've even got that moment where, well, you have Anya when Giles comes back saying, um, "You can't have the store back. I signed papers." You, you signed papers. You signed papers. You signed papers. So she's all vested in the system, right? She yeah. thinks that's what. And then you have um, when they talk about Mfashnik, um you have the description being, we'll do acts of mayhem for money, and Xander saying, that's the American way, right? And it's like, yes, that's our system. Our system is about acts of mayhem for money. It has nothing to do with healing. So whatever Buffy's going to need to do to heal, it's going to have to happen outside of the established system and the the help, the quote-unquote help, that would technically be available there. It's just clearly not going to help her. And I would say that, by the way, this is a really oblique, foreshadowing of normal again because normal again shows how much the system is not going to help buffy <laughs> hey r remind remind me because uh earlier when you were talking about uh the role that like basements and cellars and stuff like that play um mm -hmm. i i had a thought and i didn't follow through with it but in normal again is there a is there a significant scene that takes place in a cellar or a basement there certainly is. Normal again is where she drags all of the Scoobies down and ties them up in the basement because okay. her her psychologist is telling her to do that. Okay. Okay. Right. That tells you how much help standard psychology is going to be, which, by the way, I'm so not a fan of for that reason, <laughs> because I've just seen how time and time again it makes things worse because it doesn't really acknowledge the complexity of the human psyche in any meaningful way. So she has her psychologist in normal again telling her, yeah, kill them all, you know, kill them all, drag them down to the basement. And then she's going to, she drags them down there. They're all tied up and she's going to loose the demon on them. And then at the last minute in normal again, she she comes to her senses. She's like, this is, I'm not going to do this. And she kills the demon and she saves her friends. And ultimately it will take her, another season and a half, that's what will make her whole. But it isn't going to be the way that the psychologists in the mental institution want her to get there. And to me, flooded ties directly to that, which is showing her that the system is not going to give you your answers. You're going to have to be transgressive to, to heal. Hmm. And I think it's generally true of most of us in this culture. If we, unless you get super lucky and you get one of those one in a million amazing therapists who actually really does understand this stuff. And they are few and far between. Um, but if you get one, God bless you and hold on to them with all your strength because they're a godsend, you know. Um, but if you don't, the system will not save you. And by the way, that's one of the other things you asked at the beginning of the show why I'm passionate about Buffy is because I believe Buffy is one of the most powerful healing tools that our culture has ever developed. And there have been several times in life when I have been dealing with a friend or someone I knew who was in psychological crisis where I have counseled them that Buffy has the answers. And I seriously mean it. 
Buffy is is a brilliant way of stepping people through the task of psychological healing, much more so than any therapy book you're ever going to find. Excellent. Um, okay. We could oh, even have Willow, I should add. You even have Willow saying, what kind of a system is that? Shouldn't there be some kind of reward? I mean, she's making the oh, subtext yeah. into text right there, right? Yeah. yeah. She's calling out the system for, yeah, this isn't going to help us, right? Before we, uh, we should wrap up here in a minute, but before we wrap up, I just want to, you brought up Willow, so I need to point out the, just because this is another foreshadowing for the path Willow is going to take across this season, we get the the really uncomfortable scene of Willow and Giles, two uh -huh. two characters who are are frequently held up as people's favorite characters. Mm -hmm. um, they are like just openly threatening each other, basically uh, being being very angry with each other, and we get down to Willow actually making a threat. Mm -hmm. The whole, mm -hmm. you're right, the magics I used are very powerful. I'm very powerful, and maybe it's not such a good idea for you to piss me off. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the things I think this show has done, so Willow's arc is one of the ones that I feel was has been the most masterfully done in this show. Because if you go all the way back even to seasons one and two, you can see foreshadows of this problem that Willow is going to have. Mm hmm you know, I mean, it's just they did an amazing job of layering it in so that by the time you get to the end, you know, to where things really hit the fan, it's totally believable because we've been watching it come for, you know, six years. Right. Um, but, yeah, that scene with Giles and Willow is interesting because, it, you know, what's Willow doing in that scene? Do you remember besides talking? It's really telling. She what was she, she was eating uh, cookies. And what else? Uh, what else? Milk and, milk and cookies. Oh, milk and cookies. Okay. What, what in our culture does milk and cookies signify? Who eats milk and cookies in our culture? Santa? <laughs> well, Santa, but kids. 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 Okay, yeah. So, you know, they're sending a really strong signal that Willow is still a child, you yeah. know? And you also, in the same episode, have, um, have Giles sleeping on Buffy's sheets from childhood her whimsical sheets yeah her whimsical childhood sheets and you have um spike calling giles watcher boy <laughs> yeah so you've got clear signals of the writers and the creators telling us that these characters are immature you know and and you know giles certainly has his his immature side to him right mm -hmm. um um, that that by the way comes out again in season seven when he gets all pissy about spike right mm -hmm. um you know, so you have two immature, underdeveloped, but very powerful people, you know, struggling through this. And while Giles is ultimately correct about Willow, you know, he's not he's he's enmeshed in the in the in the the unsettled, tumultuous, childlike energy. He's literally wrapped in Buffy's childlike energy in those sheets. Right. So, well, I mean, he in this season, he in just a few episodes, he makes his own uh, sort of maybe childish immature mistake by assuming that uh you know buffy doesn't need him anymore and he's just gonna go and leave <laughs> leave all of this behind yeah and and that's actually a good question is is that a moment of maturity for him or is that him bailing because it's just too hard you know and i'd have to relook at the episode yeah um but either way in this episode you know there are strong signals that neither one of them are, are in their most mature and powerful incarnation <laughs> You know? Right. Um, 
All right. So the last note that I want to make here, and and you can, if you've got other stuff to talk about, we can do that. But my last note is uh, just a silly shout out to my other podcast, Gobbledy Geek, because we just did an episode where we discussed uh, the cabin in the woods. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, in that film, there's a scene uh, featuring a whiteboard with with all sorts of crazy stuff written on it. Uh, okay. And that film and that scene in particular also features Tom Lank, the actor who plays That's Andrew, crazy. who makes his debut in a scene in right. this episode with a whiteboard with all sorts of crazy stuff written on it. That's right. That's right. So. It's been a long time. I only saw that that um, that movie once. Um, but I do recall that. And by the way, as a complete aside, we once auditioned Tom Lank to be the lead in a film that I was that I wrote and with, that we were producing in Hollywood. And he was a wonderful, amazing, talented actor. And I just I wish him the best. He he's just amazing. I love him. I know he's just he was so gracious and so just incredible. It was lovely. I really wish that we could have cast him for that. He wasn't quite right for it, but oh my god, it was such a pleasure. <laughs> awesome. But, Anyway, there uh, all right. Is there anything else? Oh, just the quote: "Crime is our wormhole." My my beloved Jonathan gets the great line: "Crime is our wormhole." As he lights a cigar with a. <laughs> um, and by the way, the trio is again in the basement. Yes. Yeah. Thinking that development is required. Yeah. You know? um, in the basement. Um, yeah, hold on a second. Let me just look. This is the part you can edit out as I'm looking at. The demon actually calls Jonathan Tiny King, by the way. <laughs> yes. Speaking of, um, the metaphor for um, the immature masculine, right? Nice. Like, Tiny King. Um, and then you do have this, um, you do have this moment where Buffy acknowledges that she's scaring people um, with her, you know, bad coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. and. I just thought, I don't know, that, that just, I made a note because to me that's such a, that's such, again, a moment of psychological reality on the healing journey is that we inadvertently oftentimes at different stages in our healing do wind up scaring people mm-hmm. um, because we're not acting the way that they want us to, or we're acting the way they want us to, but it isn't quite working, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's a nice foreshadow of what happens in the rest of season six when she really starts to scare people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> with her little adventure with Spike and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then all the way at the end, I made a, a little note. Um, well, Buffy says, I don't think I can do this, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that, um, which kind of speaks for itself. But then all the way at the end, the very last scene in, um, it's a good good place to end it, I guess, in Flooded is Dawn. Uh, you know, Buffy has left to go meet Angel, but basically to run out on her adult problems because the system hasn't been able to solve them and she doesn't have any other good suggestions yet. Um, and it leaves Dawn sitting on the couch. Now, Anya has already, or Willow has already said, let's take these broken things out back and give them a proper burial. You know, the, the coffee table and all the stuff that got broken. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, which by the way is another indication that things won't help. Right. <laughs> she can fix things as much as she wants, but material possessions are not going to be the solution here. Um, but notice they, Dawn is still holding the broken light. They didn't take that out somehow. And so Dawn at the end is sitting there all by, well, sitting there with Giles in the living room and she's holding the broken light, um, which did not get taken out in the back for the burial. And I thought about how that's kind of a nice metaphor for broken wisdom, for failed enlightenment, you know? Oh, nice, nice. Right? It's like Dawn is sitting there with with the, the shards of wisdom and enlightenment. <laughs> Not having any clue in her young, underdeveloped, 
lost inner child self, parentless inner child self, how to, how to, you know, how to put the broken pieces together and get that enlightenment that, or even just on a more simple symbolic level, the light to show them the way is broken and no one knows how to fix it. Nice. That reminds me of uh, her line in bargaining when she's telling Spike, I'm not the key anymore. Or if I am, I don't open anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's all having to do with, you know, everything Buffy has tried so far to come back. Her grand solution didn't work. Jumping into the, into the thing at the end of the gift, that didn't work. So now she's back and the system's not working. So, hmm, what the hell else is there? Yeah. And it's going to take her two seasons to figure out what that is. And that's why I say that season six is the heart of Buffy. <laughs> really want to understand Buffy season six. What's that? Well, uh, I'll tell you when we, when we first jumped on the mic before the show officially started and you set that up for me, you, you told me your premise that season six is the heart of Buffy and you tell people to start with season six. I had a little cold chill run through my body <laughs> because I was like, Oh, this could be a very interesting conversation <laughs> that we're about to have. But, uh, this was great. This was fascinating. And, uh, and you've, you've shaken my world. So good. My congratulations. Word. <laughs> And a pleasure, Paul. So, yeah, you absolutely are, are going to have to come back on the show and continue to shake my world. And uh, I would love to. Thank Happy you. Happy Angel, too. I, I, I agree with you that Angel is, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a bigger fan, but I'm certainly as much of an Angel fan, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I have everybody has signed up for Buffy episodes and obviously I'm, I'm juggling schedule as, as much as I can to give people opportunities to talk about what they want to talk about, but almost nobody has signed up for angel. So <laughs> angel <laughs> is by and large a wide open field for you to come in and, and join me on. Oh, well, there we go. But anyways, that is in our future. And I'm so looking forward to angel. Uh, but thank you faith for, for joining me and for uh, challenging me. Um, I always give my guests an opportunity to let listeners know how they can, can stalk them online. If that is something that you want, this is your chance. Oh, you can totally stalk me online. I'm at faithcurrent.com, F-A-I-T-H-C-U-R-R-A-N-T.com. All right. Simple and to the point. I like it. <laughs> okay. Thank you again. And uh, thank you guys at home for listening. Uh, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com. Um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, if you do that, please rate us or write a, a review. Um, there are a bunch of Buffy podcasts out there uh, that got here first. So uh, anything you could say about us that would help us stand out from the crowd, I'd appreciate that. Um, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash you guessed it, cons with dead. Uh, next week, PhD student, author, and Mr. Pointy Award winner Stephanie Graves returns again to discuss episodes 605 Life Serial and 606 All the Way. Until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. <laughs>
all day But tomorrow they'll be held to pay 